0: Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners, as well as other professionals. Co-hosts Dr. Reed Hayes of the Lost Prevention Research Council and Tom Mean of Control Tech discuss a wide range of topics with industry experts, thought leaders, solution providers, and many more. This week's episode will focus on product protection and LPRC theories and methods with featured guest LPRC senior research scientist Mike Giblin. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Protect high-risk items using Bosch IP cameras with built-in video analytics. Send a video snapshot to a manager when a person loiters at a display or trigger an audio message to play through a loudspeaker when an item is touched while gaining situational awareness using video verification solutions. Alert potential offenders they are being watched and improve customer service for legitimate shoppers, all with video analytics. Learn more about product protection in Zones 1 and 2 of the LPRC Zones of Influence or by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com.
1: All right, live from Gainesville, Florida. Here we are with another episode of Crime Science from the Loss Prevention Research Council, LPRC. Um, And today, uh, myself, Dr. Reed Hayes from the University of Florida, um, I'm joined by uh, our Senior Research Scientist at the LPRC, Mike Giblin, uh, as well, of course, my co-host, Tom Meehan of Control Tech. Um, And today, what we're going to do is talk a little bit with Mike about uh, research, but research particularly uh, on the product protection side. How do we uh, protect merchandise, uh, but not run off the good customer while doing that? Um, and so we wanna always be loss prevention, not as some in retail used to call us sales prevention. So Tom, with that, I'm gonna go over to you for a quick introduction and, uh, and see what your first question might be for Mike.
2: Sure, thank you, Reed. Uh, this is a great topic uh, for all of the listeners. Uh, It's certainly near and dear to my heart, but uh, without further ado, uh, I'd like to introduce Mike Gillen. Mike, why don't you tell the listeners about yourself, a little bio and background. I know uh, most of the folks know you that are related to the LPRC, but a lot of our listeners are not.
3: Sure. Thanks, Tom. So um, I have been with LPRC for a little bit over four years. Um, I have been facilitating the product protection group uh, throughout that time. Um, I come from a background of consumer behavior, so um, that has definitely given me kind of uh, some good insight when it comes to... Ensuring that uh, customers are are being you know thought about uh, throughout the research process. Um, anytime that we do uh, research, we have customers as part of the uh, of the process that we interview. We want to make sure any LP technologies that we're testing out, uh, we get feedback from customers. Make sure that uh, it has either a neutral or a positive effect on customers. Uh, we don't want to uh, inhibit sales uh, while we're trying to uh, to reduce shrink. So. Um, That is uh, one of the main groups I facilitate. It's one of the largest groups at the LPRC. Uh, We average maybe about 25 uh, folks on our monthly call series for this group, Uh, and we actually have 18 projects going on here in 2018 uh, in this working group. So a lot of the research that we do uh, revolves around testing technologies, doing uh, offender, customer, and associate interviews. Most of that research is going to fall into this product protection working group. Uh, Things like EAS, things like wraps, uh, keepers, those types of technologies, as well as fixture technology. Technologies and benefit denial are all going to fall into this category.
2: And and Mike, in that group with product protection, um, I I know that and Reed mentioned it during the introduction. In the past, the the term uh, you know sales prevention was used, and asset protection was a cost center. You know, how do you tackle deterring crime without taking away from the shopping experience?
3: So I think that's a great question. Um, there's a special subset of technologies out there that uh, kind of provide a dual benefit. So not only will they hopefully prevent crime um, and prevent shoplifting, but they have some other sort of benefit that goes along with it. So whether it's allowing uh, the retailers to have increased inventory control or insight into their inventory, um, or if it's something that actually makes shopping easier. So if it's spreading the product out or presenting it in a way that uh, becomes easier to shop at the rack, um, those technologies are kind of a special class, and so uh, that's the first area that we look at. Um, we look at trying to take technologies that have been uh, presented to retailers. Um, and come up with ways to maybe do some tweaks and turn them into those dual function technologies um, that not only prevent theft, but can somehow help the customer um, in one way or another. And one of the major ways that these technologies do help customers that often gets overlooked is by allowing uh, the product to be on open sale. So if you're taking something and putting it out and you know, you're know you wrapping it or you're putting an EAS tag on it, um, that may be a minor inconvenience for customers, but uh, they may not realize that the alternative is having the product locked behind a glass case um, where they would have to for assistance. And so uh, kind of raising awareness on on that dynamic is another important piece of what we do.
2: And specific to the working group, because it's such a large working group, and I think it's one of the more, um, you know, fluent in the sense that it applies to almost everybody that's a part of the LPRC. What are some of the research projects that you've done recently? If you could just give a brief overview of one that comes to mind, I think when you talk about the selling experience and how it affects the customer, it might help to add some context with a research project and what was learned from it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So one great example is a benefit denial technology that we've been doing research on uh, for the past couple of years. Uh, so this technology is in the electronic uh, product category. It is essentially uh, built into uh, the firmware of an electronic product, and um, it renders the product useless until it's purchased, until it's actually run through the point of sale. There's an activation code required that um, doesn't get generated until that sale occurs. So someone could steal it off of the shelves. They could bring it home and try you know every permutation that they'd like of the code, um, and there's in fact no code that will unlock it if it hasn't been purchased. Um, So uh, we've been doing research on this. We've been looking at it from several different uh, angles. Uh, Customers is a huge piece of it. So we've uh, done some customer interviews um, in a couple of different uh, stores. Our research tends to go from a small, maybe pilot, one-store test uh, up to a 10 to 20-store test, so on and so forth, all the way to a full-scale nationwide rollout. Um, That's exactly uh, the process that we followed here. So we interviewed uh, a handful of customers in a single store at the pilot store. Uh, Then we then interviewed about 20 customers um, at the next stage, Um, and then we We moved down the line from there. Uh, We wanted to get a sense of how intuitive this uh, concept was to the customers. We wanted to make sure uh, that it was something that was easily understood. There's a box mark that goes on these products that lets customers and would-be offenders know uh, that this technology is present. So a big uh, part of the battle is making sure that that box mark is designed in a way that's uh, very easy to understand, uh, gets the message across clearly, and uh, prepares the customer for uh, the additional step they'll need to take in this process of purchasing that they wouldn't normally, which is unlocking the product once uh, once it's been purchased. Um, So we uh, conducted customer interviews. We also conducted offender interviews. We wanted to make sure that, again, that message was loud and clear to offenders, uh, that they understood what this technology was, understood that it was present, they noticed it, um, and then also that they uh, were deterred by it. They didn't just think, I can bring it home, I'll figure it out afterwards, or I've got a tech-savvy buddy that's going to be able to unlock this thing. Uh, We wanted to make sure there was a deterrent factor as well. Um, then the third group that we interview uh, with all of our research is associates. Um, so we got some really interesting feedback in this case. Um, associates felt that with this technology in place, um, they felt more at ease. So they were able to uh, spend less time worrying about this particular end cap. That uh, in this case, tablets were on. Uh, they were able to focus on other parts of their job. They didn't feel like they had to stop stocking and look up every ten seconds and make sure that uh, they were policing the area. Uh, so it allowed them to focus more on, on other parts of their work. Um, and this is a great example as well of uh, as I mentioned earlier, being able to take a product that was locked up, which these tablets were uh, beforehand. The retailer just wasn't able to uh, bear the cost of having them out on open sell because of the shrink that they were incurring. Um, and we were able to bring the technology out um, onto an end cap. Um, and uh, obviously, when you bring it from an end cap uh, from a locked state, you're going to, uh, to hypothesize a sales increase, which is uh, what we saw here in this case.
2: I know the LPRC often does offender interviews, and I think that um, the members, you know, that's one of the things that people always resonate to. I know I always did uh, in both my past and present. For this particular study, what are some of the things that you learned from the offenders? What did they say? Uh, What, if anything, changed, and, and how did you share that with the LPRC members?
3: Yeah, so that, that's uh, definitely critical to the research process. You know, once we get this, this information and feedback from all three of those populations, uh, we, we return that to the solution provider that is designing the technology. And uh, the, uh, the great hope is that they will take that and incorporate it and actually change their designs. And so uh, we did that with the, uh, the creation of the box mark that goes on to the product in this case. Um, we took, uh, I think, maybe five or six different iterations of it, and showed it to the offenders. Uh, we also showed it to uh, would-be customers and to uh, LP executives, and got feedback uh, from each group. Uh, we got great kind of uh, individualized feedback from offenders. Things like, uh, you know, this thing looks like it's an antivirus protection that's on this computer. It's meant to protect the consumer once they purchase it. Um, this thing, you know, isn't noticeable enough, or I, I don't understand what this means. We were able to bring that back uh, to uh, to the manufacturer. Um, we got feedback about the color and about what color kind of uh, pops the most and uh, is going to be the most noticeable that we brought back as well. Uh, When it comes to the technology itself, um, the first iteration of this technology was uh, much more onerous on the, uh, on the side of the retailer when it comes to the infrastructure demand of uh, what upfront kind of, Purchase, they would have to make upfront changes to their point of sale. Um, it actually required uh, a separate scanning device, and it required uh, a maybe thirty second or so um, kind of unlocking process that would occur at the point of sale. Um, and through LPRC's research and through the feedback that they garnered, um, they were very receptive to that feedback and were able to uh, to adapt the technology and make it something more feasible that uh, the retailers would uh, would be able to better use and incorporate into their stores. And so that's um, definitely you know we'd love to see that process unfold each time that we conduct research. Um, the requisites for that are it to be kind of uh, phased research. So uh, we talk about our, our innovation chains and the process starting you know, maybe in a single store and then moving out to uh, a small, medium, and large size test. Um, one of the main uh, kind of pieces that we want to make sure uh, occurs there, uh, we hate to see somebody jump right in with a single store test and then say, okay, I got the uh, the results I need. Um, we want them to move to phase two to make sure that, uh, that the initial findings that we're seeing are, are supported and that whatever iterations or changes uh, our research may suggest uh, end up being uh, being implemented and that we're able to kind of do a retest and see, okay, let's look at what phase two looks like. Let's look at what the second iteration of this technology looks like.
1: You know, Mike, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, you've been here four years at the uh, LPRC. Um, From your perspective, what are some of the changes that the LPRC has made uh, that are probably having an impact on what we do in loss prevention or asset protection um, and how we do it? And and most importantly, uh, the results of asset protection action.
3: Absolutely, yes. So the retailers, um, I think, have changed their decision-making process a little bit over the course of time from what I've seen. So Um, The decision uh, kind of involves this additional stage of of research and testing, which I think, um, you know, the LPRC over the years has uh, has helped to kind of uh, get put into that process. Um, So they'll come to uh, either us or they'll, uh, you know, previously, maybe it was just uh, going straight to a solution provider and saying, let's put this in a store and see what it looks like or in 10 stores or 50 stores. Um, but doing it in a way where we're actually kind of set, collecting scientific data, where we're making sure that uh, we're getting kind of a pointed uh, you know, interview feedback from the three populations of interest, as well as uh, doing a fair job of assigning uh, control group and, uh, and test group when it comes to randomized controlled trials. Um, I think that that kind of fundamental shift in in the the decision process and a demanding of uh, evidence, you know, going to a solution provider and saying, "Well, this looks great, but where's your evidence? Has this been tested?" Um, is uh, is a huge part of the kind of shift that we're seeing in retail. That I think LPRC has played a major role in.
1: That's great, and um, as we've talked about on this podcast, um, what we try to do is uh, use psychology that we're trying to convince or at least influence. Uh, shoppers to do the right thing and to do more of that right thing. By uh, as well as, of course, influence the uh, bad guy, the offender, uh, not to come here, or if they do, not to do something bad, or you know, forbid that if they do, then not to come back. So, uh, can you describe sort of some of the psychology that we use and uh, that we use to develop initially what we're doing, and then to tweak uh, the treatments or the uh, countermeasures that we use?
3: So I think one of the most important points um that uh, that we make and that uh, we we try to ensure is is really ingrained in in our membership is this concept of uh, not being the target audience ourselves. Um, so we as scientists or as LP professionals, whatever the case may be, um, we're going to be approaching the world around us in, in a very different way from the offenders or from customers, depending on the customer subset. Um, so when we walk into a store, we see really a whole different world than uh, an offender would see. Um, you know, when you think about even the individual differences in things like vision, you know, do people have corrected vision? Are they able to see something that's 10 feet away, 20 feet away? Um, I think that that's a great great kind of analogy for, uh, you know, that's kind of a physical alteration of the space around them. But uh, the psychological alterations, you know, you're not going to notice something if you don't know what it is. Um, you're not going to uh, to understand technology, even if you do notice it, um, if you don't live in this world of, uh, of loss prevention and, uh, you know, anti anti-theft technologies all around you every day. Um, so I think that's really one of the most important psychological pieces is trying to start from uh, that kind of square one of what does the offender see when they walk into this environment? Um, and once we understand that a little bit better, a little bit better, we can affect the way that uh, they go about uh, interacting with their environment. Um, so once we have a, a kind of a sense of are they noticing this or aren't they, we can dive a little bit deeper, try to figure out why that is. And then we can uh, make whatever uh, tweaks we need to in order to, uh, to raise the rate of uh, noticing, raise the rate of understanding and eventually raise the rate of deterrence uh, with those technologies and with those policy changes.
1: Yeah, that's good stuff. And maybe we get a little bit deeper in the weeds. How do you, how do you use the concepts that we uh, derive from situational crime prevention from uh, Dr. Ron Clark and others that, that go back now more than one decade, uh, like effort and risk and reward? How, how do you uh, operationalize those? How do you use those to design, to enhance, and to adjust as, a, as the offender does? So different technologies out there um, definitely try to hone
3: in on one of those three. Uh, we call them mechanisms of action. Um, and uh, some of them try to do multiple uh, at once. Uh, but again, it's all about understanding, you know, what's going on behind the curtain. So uh, somebody like a product manufacturer or somebody like, uh, you know, a, a APM or something like that in a store, um, you know, th- they're going to understand that if you lock something in a safe, it's harder to get. Um, but really trying to break down what is it about that that's effective. You know, once you get that secret sauce out of it through the research process, uh, you can repeat that. You can say, well, let's take that that one attribute or that one kind of mechanism that's really causing uh, this thing to uh, to be protected and let's Incorporate that into other technologies that are out there. So, if it turns out that you know a, a safe, for instance, works well because um, it's is hidden, maybe it's not the fact that uh, that it's something that's is difficult to get into. It's just that it's in a back room and that people don't know where it is. Uh, we've heard of uh, some companies using safes that are kind of uh, meant to be disguised as mini fridges, things like that. Um, so, you know, we're talking about a concept of hiding your asset as opposed to protecting it behind, uh, behind uh, four inches of metal, that kind of thing. So really taking a deep dive uh, with uh, effort, risk, and reward and understanding why it is that the things that seem to be working are in fact working and then duplicating and replicating those, uh, those attributes uh, and trying to put them into additional technologies, making things you know, more noticeable if that was what was uh, causing it not to work, uh, making things uh, riskier or, or more effortful or, uh, or less rewarding if those are the areas that need improvement.
1: That's good. And and you incorporate a little bit of the see, get fear uh, into the effort, risk, reward that we're trying to convince this person, hey, don't initiate, don't, you know, commence this crime uh, because it's going to be too difficult, as you mentioned, or you know what, you're going to get caught. Uh, it's just too risky for you. Uh, or it's not going to be worth it. The, this benefit denial here. We're going to deny you the reward or or what all you thought you would get out of this. It's just not going to be worth it. Um but you mentioned on the see, get fear. Can you elaborate a little more? You talked about we want to make things maybe more noticeable, uh, but also recognizable and credible, I guess, right? Yeah, so um, unlike effort, risk, and reward, uh,
3: those are kind of three separate pieces that aren't necessarily you know uh, nested within one another. You don't need effort in order to get risk, in order to get reward. Uh, but Seek get Fear does follow that kind of protocol process where it's very difficult to get a deterrent effect if you don't get these two prerequisites of the offender noticing it and the offender understanding that it's there to prevent theft. Um, And so that's, uh, I think, a really interesting piece that uh, that we've tried to get out into uh, into our membership base and and make sure that uh, that's kind of the way that they're thinking of this concept of uh, noticeability comes first. It's going to be very difficult to get these other two attributes if noticeability is lacking. Uh, so you have to start there, then you have to move to understanding, making sure that the technology is recognized as a loss prevention technology, um, as well as being noticeable. And then finally, to the third criteria of I've noticed it, I understand it's there to stop me. Uh, but do I believe whatever deterrent uh, kind of claim that is being made? Do I really think there's someone behind the camera? Do I really think anyone's going to you know, turn their head and look if this EAS pedestal goes off? Um, that's kind of the third uh, factor, and so the fact that these have to occur kind of in sequence, uh, I think, is a great thought exercise and uh, a great kind of uh, a great structure that uh, that LPRC provides uh, for uh, the LP community to help them kind of think through these problems in in a way that's going to uh, to allow them to get the best results.
1: No, uh, good. Again, Mike and. Um, and i wanted to see if you could touch a little bit on this zones of influence concept we're making things harder riskier less rewarding hopefully that's the way the offender takes what we're doing um and that they do notice it or perceive it somehow and they they understand how it might bite them and then and you know what it's a clear and present danger to what they're trying to do they fear it or they they they, they uh, it's a credible threat um but how do, how do we deploy three dimensionally can you kind of describe Uh, with your research and and working with the membership, the practitioners out there, uh, how we use the zones concept. So the Zones
3: are all about the offender's journey. So, um, you know, an offender doesn't just suddenly pop into existence when they walk through the the doors of a retail store. Um, Obviously, you know, they they had to walk through the parking lot to get there. Um, They had to make their way to the parking lot from wherever their domicile is and through whatever neighborhood that happens to be in. Um, And so all of these are opportunity points. And so I think one of the big uh, pieces of the Zones of Influence concept is kind of uh, taking a step back and uh, zooming out a little bit and looking at the holistic uh, list of opportunities points that we have um, in order to deter a, a particular crime. So if uh, if an offender is, you know, getting to your door and is still uh, kind of set on the fact that they're going to try to shoplift from you, you've already missed a couple opportunities. There was an opportunity in the parking lot to either have, you know, more cameras, more present cameras, more present signage, uh, maybe to have an increased impression of control by being, uh, you know, a, a cleanlier setting or by being just a, a more aesthetically pleasing setting. Um, you've missed opportunities perhaps uh, out in zone five already, which are things like uh, the overall brand image that you have, you know, is uh, the relationship that you have with your customers, one where they feel that you're more likely to forgive them if they get caught committing a crime on your property because that's your overall kind of vibe that you have is that you're a friendly uh, customer-facing company. You know, these are all things that we consider. Um, Things like uh, Zone 5 also fall into the category of where the product goes once it's stolen. And so we think of the zones of influence as the journey into the store. So from Zone 5 to 4 to 3 to 2 to 1, all the way to the product. And then back out. So out from one, two, out into three, four, and five. Um, And each one of the zones uh, is going to have several opportunity points at each step of that process where you can affect that uh, offender's decision, um, show them technologies that uh, could potentially deter them, have policies in place, have people talking to them, have associates that are supposed to greet them. Um, These are all the kind of ways that we uh, think about their process of moving in and out of your space and uh, the different opportunity points that are there. One of the major things that we hear from our retail members when we present this to them is, uh, hey, you know, I was uh, I was doing a good job in this area, maybe zone one, maybe zone two, uh, but now that you're presenting it to me this way, I feel like there's a huge missed opportunity somewhere else. Um, and so it allows them to think more holistically and kind of shore up uh, those opportunity points that they may have missed.
1: Very good. So what I'll do, um, as we've talked about a little bit about uh, how the research works and the psychological aspects of how we're trying to influence uh, offenders and their decisions or choices that they make, um, you know, I'm going to ask one more question, go back over to Tom. But, you know, f- while I remember this, Mike, can you maybe describe briefly a typical day in the life of a, an LPRC research scientist? Uh, you're out, you're supporting practitioners that are uh, out there in the stores or DCs or in the corporate office uh, trying to protect things. You're, you're also supporting the practitioners and the solution partners organizations as they develop and tweak solutions that the retailers need. Can you describe a typical day? Sure. Um
3: so I think we we have kind of a model that we talk about here that we refer to as the three eyes. Um, I see that as a really kind of good structure to uh, to uh, center the day around when it comes to being a research scientist here. So, uh, identify, inform, and integrate are those three I's. Uh, starting with identify, we try to find problems out there that um, that we can help uh, try to solve for for retailers. We try to identify issues that they're facing. We try to help them quantify whatever that issue is. Really try to drill down and figure out exactly what question they'd like answered. Um, you know, turn general "I'm having an issue here" type of statements into "I hypothesize that if I do." this differently, maybe this different outcome will occur type of statements. Once we do that, um, we need to conduct the research, which is a huge part of what we do here day to day, and then inform the members on it, which is uh, probably the, the second biggest piece, if not kind of tied for first. Uh, we need to take the research, put it in a format that's very usable for these practitioners, uh, make sure that it's something that is uh, short enough that they're actually going to be able to, to get through it quickly and uh, you know, put it into uh, whatever format they need to, uh, to move forward with it and use it to change the way that they do something from uh, from their day-to-day jobs um, and then from there, we help them with integration. So uh, what's the next step? You know, where does this fit into my grand scheme of, of everything I'm trying to accomplish this year as a retailer? Um, how can uh, this you know, be used in other formats or how can this help me uh, with my overall strategy? Um, as well as next steps on that particular research question. So now that we have this question answered, what's the kind of natural next question that needs to be asked? Or do we need to do a re- additional research in a new way to, uh, to provide additional evidence? Um, So those three I's, I think, are are a really good kind of way of thinking about the way that scientists
2: operate here day to day.
1: Good stuff. Tom, I'm going to go back to you.
2: Mike, so if you uh, had an opportunity to talk to a prospective member or a very new member of the LPRSC, what would be some advice or recommendations you would give them to make the researchers' lives easier?
3: That's a great question. So um, I think the number one piece that I would try to convey immediately is um, this kind of concept of you know, getting in what you put out when it comes to data analysis, when it comes to research design. Um, So we'll have situations where a retailer will come to us and they'll be really excited. They'll say, okay, we're going to hand you this data set and we want to know, you know, on average, uh, do women shop at this time more often than men? And we'll look at the data set and we'll see that uh, they they didn't give us a time of day metrics on on sales or something like that, or they didn't give us gender metrics. And so um, I think that uh, just kind of developing that understanding of this is the type of information that you need to collect. This is the ideal way to collect it in order to answer certain questions, um, I think, is is a huge piece that, that can really help with the overall scientific process. No matter how that data is going to be used, collecting it in, in that way, uh, even if it's you know not for immediate use, if it's something that you just may plan in the future, um, is definitely huge. And when it comes to the way that the research process unfolds, for um, for trials, randomized controlled trials, things of that nature, um, it's equally important making sure that uh, things are set up in a way, uh, you know, if a retailer comes to us and wants to do a randomized controlled trial and they say, I have approval to do it in these four stores that are all in different corners of the country, um, that severely limits our, our ability as scientists to uh, to do things like randomize, to do things like control for extraneous variables and factors. And so um, those two pieces, I think, are really important, just uh, that concept of, uh, you know, planning very carefully what you're going to collect and how you're going to set up a study um, so that you can uh, kind of set yourself up for success in those areas.
2: And with specifically to see, get, fear, if you have a retailer that's thinking of that, are there easy things or easy steps to break that down when they're basically trying to apply something that they learned from a research study?
3: Well, I think um, one of the kind of easiest ways to get started with Seagate Fear is to uh, just kind of do a thought exercise with some of the technologies that are already in your store as a retailer. So, um, if you're you know a prospective retail member and uh, you're being you know told about Seagate Fear for the first time, you know think about what's on your shelf in your HBC section, what's on your shelf in your electronic section, um, and try to you know just visualize as an offender, as a customer walking through those areas, you know, are the things that I've put in place that are meant to eventually be determined. Are they being noticed? Um, you know, what uh, potentially could I do to make them more noticeable if, if I feel that there's opportunities there? Um, you know, are they uh, technologies that are obvious when it comes to the mechanism? So is it uh, a camera that looks like a camera or is it, you know, just kind of a, a little dot on the ceiling kind of thing? Um, and then uh, I think fear is the one that's, uh, that we have a better handle on. You know, we have a sense intuitively of if something's working or not, if uh, we're getting to that kind of step three. Um, so I think that the real kind of eye-opening pieces are, are those first two steps that are prerequisites to that fear.
2: And specifically to the product protection working group, how does a member get involved? When is the call? So if someone's listening to this, how can they get involved and when, when should they be on the call?
3: Yeah, so we do a monthly call uh, for the Product Protection Group. It is, uh, I believe, the third Thursday of each month um, at uh, 11 o'clock. I'll have to double check on that. But uh, to get involved, uh, just uh, you can reach out to myself, uh, mike at lpresearch.org. Um, and I'm happy to get uh, get you involved in that group. I'm happy to set a call to uh, to give you a quick update on what we're up to. Um, I think taking a step maybe a little bit further back, um, our research agenda is is a really powerful tool uh, that can be used to uh, to help someone that's kind of learning about us for the first time uh, really get a sense of what these working groups are, um, what uh, the innovation chains are, and where all the research that we conduct throughout the year fits into them. So uh, we have I think uh, about 60 projects that we have listed on this document. It's uh, on the front page of our website towards the bottom right corner. Uh, You can take a look at this document. When you click on each tile, it gives you a a pop-up that shows what that project is um, and what group it's occurring in. Um, So that's a great way to take a look and see, okay, uh, these five projects are really interesting to me. It looks like they're kind of occurring in the product protection group and maybe one other group. Uh, I should reach out and see if I can uh, start getting on those two monthly calls. Um, So I think that that's a great kind of uh, first couple of steps uh, for someone that's, you know, intrigued by this and and wants to, uh, to know how to get started.
1: You know, Mike, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we know that our role at the LPRC is to support the practitioner um, to uh, get better at building their strategy, the framework to deliver the strategy, and, of course, the tactics and technology they use to make that that all work for them. Um, But, and we, further, we know that we're here to support not only their organizations, but the industry associations. We work very well, we believe, with RELA, with NRF, with FMI, with the Retail Council of Canada, um, then National Associations of Convenience Stores, Clear, and and on and on. Um, We're not here to compete, but to support. But I was going to ask you, um, in our role, uh, how are we different than the industry associations? And I think one way is the working groups uh, and that ongoing nature. But also, maybe you can work in what an iChain or an innovation chain is and, and use what you're working on with RFID there. Sure. So
3: our conference differs a little bit uh, from other conferences in the industry because it is uh, at its foundation, a culmination of everything that's been done throughout the year. Um, so it's kind of a show and tell of everything that these working groups have accomplished through their 12 monthly calls, through whatever in-person summits they've done throughout the course of the year, um, through the other ways that they've interacted with one another and gotten work done, conducted research, finished reports. Um, and this is kind of uh, our opportunity during the Impact Conference each year to show those research projects off. Um, so that's a little bit different, I think, in that uh, it's, it's kind of a, a showing of what ongoing uh, processes have been Occurring. Um, I think that's, uh, you know, to your other points, the working groups um, are kind of uh, collections of a area that is of interest. So there's something like a product protection working group, um, where there can be, you know, a dozen different tests going on, one that looks at HBC products in a pharmacy, one that looks at electronic products in a big box retailer. Um, And what they have in common is kind of the general theme of what's trying to be accomplished, which is protecting the product. Um, But they aren't necessarily kind of uh, connected to one another when it comes to the physical space that they occur in or when it comes to an overall kind of uh, thematic uh, process through which uh, we're going to move on to a next stage. The innovation chains are a little bit different in that everything in an innovation chain is holistic and that um, it usually will occur in the same geographic location as we move from one step in the chain to the next um, and each project uh, kind of is a small piece of a larger project. Um, and so it's, uh, I think, is a, a grander kind of scheme. It's, uh, it's meant to uh, move us uh, in a direction of understanding how technologies talk to one another, how things integrate with one another, um, and solving you know a, a big question, something like, how do you stop violence in a retail setting? That's something an innovation chain would tackle, whereas Product Protection Working Group and other working groups would tackle smaller questions like, does this particular technology seem to protect this particular? type of product. Um, so I think it's a kind of a scalability as well as a, as well as a connectivity kind of
1: difference. All right. Thank you for that. I think that I know that helps me um, uh, understand how the LPRC works to support our members uh, in their mission. Um, so what I'd like to do today is thank you, Mike, Mike Giblin, again senior research scientist at the Loss Prevention Research Council. Um, of course, my uh, partner in crime, Tom Meehan of Control Tech, um, a longtime retail LPAP practitioner. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Kevin Tran, um, and our technical director, of course, Jordan Burchell, and, and everybody out there listening to us. Um, please, we're always looking for and grateful for your suggestions on topics, on process, and everything else. Uh, I do want to remind everybody in the listening audience as well that. The 2018 uh, uh, LPRC Impact Conference uh, last year, almost 325 executives getting together uh, at and on the University of Florida campus to go through Learning Labs and go through uh, over 25 research projects. This year, we anticipate an even larger crowd. Um, we're going up to 10 Learning Labs this year. Uh, even we've got a really neat gamification program called Mad Scientist where. Uh, the participant is and becomes the mad scientist and, as they move through and learn and share and have a blast. Um, so I want to let everybody know, IMPACT is the 1st to the 3rd of October this year, typically the first week in October here in beautiful Gainesville, Florida. Um, if you have more questions, you want to learn more, you want to enroll, register for IMPACT, go to lpresearch.org backslash IMPACT. Um, so with that, I'm going to sign off. We look forward to seeing you on the next uh, episode of Crime Science. Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We would like to once again thank Bosch for making this episode possible. If you would like to suggest topics for future episodes or provide feedback, please email kevin at lpresearch.org. See you next time.